Well, amen. It is great to be worshiping together and taking communion together. I know many of you have been traveling for the July, July 4th plans, so welcome back. Uh, also, I want to give you a quick update that you think about maybe being back in your church family and celebrating together and worshiping together. We're just a few weeks away from the opportunity to uh, have Turner come in and really uh, build out and put our video system in place. So as you're traveling during the summer and look to next summer, we're looking to have a video archive ready to go here by the end of the summer. So you'll be able to watch services and then live stream, hopefully, uh, by the end of this year. You'll be able to watch services when you're traveling. So I know many of you are excited about that. I've asked for opportunities to look into that. Uh, as I mentioned before, we're working on the app. It's being developed now. You can watch services through the app. So very, very exciting things going on here in the next 30 days. So thanks again for those of you who served. There's going to be more opportunities to serve as we look at additional services and chances to take what we just experienced and put that in front of other people with this new room and this new space. So thanks for your service. Thanks for your future service. And for those who maybe weren't part of giving, be part of that. As we're developing the app in the last pieces, there's still a chance to be part of um, being part of what God's doing. It's a pretty exciting time. Well, today we're continuing the book of Luke. As we do that, we're going to repackage Luke for the next few weeks. We're looking at the Feast of Forgiveness. There's a specific uh, Feast of Forgiveness that Jesus parted with his disciples, the Lord's Supper, that we're going to dive into today. And while we're teaching through this for the next several weeks, we're also going to teach you how to study the Bible. You know, part of our equipping service and why we want to expand the reach of that is we don't just teach the Bible, we also teach you how to understand the Bible on your own. Well, in this particular series, I want to teach you one word. Pacer. P-A-C-E-R. Pacer. This one word you can use when you come to any Bible passage, and you can look for pieces in that passage. You're looking for P, promises to claim, A, actions to follow, C, commands to obey, E, examples to imitate, or more often than not, not imitate. The Bible's filled with bad examples more than good examples. And what is some rebellion that you might need to repent of? So whether you're looking at a Pauline epistle or a narrative, or in this case, we're in the book of Luke, Gospels, these are great ways in which as you're studying a passage, you can look for how the Holy Spirit may want to speak to you. So I'll give an example today. Let's look at our passage, and then we'll dive into the sermon. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. Now, when we dig into figuring out exactly what unleavened bread is, I think you're going to discover there's a promise that we can claim. That may not be obvious at first, but I'll just make a note of that. It's also called Passover because these two feasts from the Old Testament really were right next to each other. And that's another promise to claim because in Christ, when Christ is your Passover lamb, God's judgment can pass over you. You don't have to live in guilt and shame and condemnation. You can live with the joy of experiencing and living with God's Passover. Next. The chief priests and scribes sought that they might kill him. Mm, okay, well that's probably a rebellion to repent of, right? It's, it's may also an example not to imitate, so that could be an R or it could be an E. They feared the people. So fear. The Bible talks about not taking the counsel of your fears, and God does not give us a spirit of fear. That also could be an example or a rebellion to repent of. Now, Satan entered Judas. All right, well, that's not good. That's another example not to imitate. Uh, don't let Satan enter you. But what happens when Satan does enter you? And here, we give very specific things that happen when you begin to go your own way, and God's kingdom's not working in you. So he, Judas, went his own way. There's an example not to imitate. He conferred with the chief priests, rebellion to repent of, and betraying God and others. 
And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. Another example to not imitate or rebellion to repent of is selling your integrity or selling your allegiances to God for some price. Okay, we'll continue the passage on. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him. Now he's moved to the place he's seeking opportunity to do the wrong thing. So again, we have another example or rebellion. He came to them in the absence of the multitude. So he started seeking opportunity to betray God by getting away from any place that he could have accountability where people could see what was going on. And then our passage is sandwiched between starting with the Passover unleavened bread and it ends again with this idea of the day of the unleavened bread and the Passover. And we're going to find that this is a promise to claim. So just a real simple technique you can use when studying the Bible, P-A-C-E-R. And we'll demonstrate that throughout the series. So as we look at that, our, our sermon today is going to come right out of this idea. Because don't we all know people like Judas? Haven't we had seasons in our own life like Judas where things were going well in our faith or our marriage or our relationship and somewhere along the way we crashed our life? We crashed a relationship, we lost sight of God's path, we weren't living in his forgiveness, and we crashed it. And it's one thing to say, wow, Judas, I would never be Judas. Well, actually, no one wanted to be Judas. Judas didn't want to be Judas. But crashing your own party, crashing your life, crashing your integrity, it can happen to any of us. And crashing your party begins when you become party to the path of Judas. There's a certain path that Judas put himself on that if you put yourself on the same path, you too will end up crashing your life or crashing your party. See, the feast is called unleavened bread. It drew near. There were two paths really here. One path led to failure that Judas took, but there was another path right in the middle of it, in the middle of the feast he was celebrating with Jesus. It was leading to forgiveness. Do you want to live in light of forgiveness or do you want to live in light of failure? You can have a self-pity party with guilt and shame that leads to destruction. Or you can learn what it is to live in the power of the grace of God. Well, let's start the way the text does, looking at this life-giving party that God is throwing. Way back in the Old Testament, God set up a series of feasts called parties. Because he wanted his people to be a partying people. People who know how to celebrate. And each one of the parties is designed in such a way to focus on some aspect of God. So this particular life-giving party is actually two life-giving parties. One is called Passover, and the other is called Unleavened Bread. When Moses laid out the law, he laid out seven different feasts, which is why the menorah laid out by Moses has seven candles on it. I think it represents the seven feasts. Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles of Sukkot. Today we're going to be looking at these three feasts because these three are all going to happen within the next four or five days in in Jesus' life. So what is this feast? And why did God set this feast up? And, And how could Judas, in the middle of God's party, miss out on it? Well, again, this is not the Passover meal because Jesus is going to die at the same time the Passover lamb does and the Passover meal happens after the death of the lamb. So that's going to be tomorrow. But Jesus is celebrating a, a preparation meal that had similar um, similarities to the Passover meal. But it's not Passover yet. It's going to happen tomorrow at 6 p.m. And Jesus would be reclining at his table with his disciples. And while he was reclining, which they would often do when they ate, 
as they're eating together and dialoguing together, he's going to talk at this feast of forgiveness with his disciples. He's going to predict betrayal of Judas, pick the betrayal of Peter. And in the middle of all of this, this is God's party. It's a time of reflection. Reflecting on what God has done by delivering them from Egypt. It was a time of celebration, celebrating their, their deliverance. It was a time of not doing any work. But to understand this feast, we've got to jump back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, we lay out what the Feast of Unleavened Bread's about and the Passover. And why this was one of God's life-giving parties for his people. In Exodus 12 it says, And this day will be a memorial. I want you to remember, take this time to reflect and remember what I've done. What are we supposed to remember? Well, keep it as a feast or party to the Lord throughout all your generations. Keep doing this. Keep thinking about this. Don't give up on this. And it seems like an eternal principle because he says, I want all generations to do this, not stop later. Keep it as a feast, as an eternal ordinance. It's something I want you to forever remember. Now, the reason it's called unleavened bread is because it's bread that has no yeast in it. So, part of bread that has no yeast in it, or matzah, was to remember that God delivered us so fast with that last plague, we didn't have time for the yeast to rise. So you ate matzah, or unleavened bread, to remind you of God's deliverance. That's why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He goes on, he says, now part of this whole process is that I want this festival of unleavened bread to last seven days, and during those seven days I want you to eat only unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses... So this is pretty key. The first thing that would happen is you were to go through your house and find any bread that had yeast in it. Go through your cupboards, go through your house, get the leaven out. Now in the Old Testament and New Testament, leaven is a symbol of of sin. And so going through your house and getting the leaven out was an important part of you preparing your heart for God's coming. Now this is not a, a type of teaching you just learn about, it's something you do. So I have actually hidden some leaven in the, in the room today. Some of you have already said, hey, is there supposed to be bread on the floor? So we're going to put on some leaven-finding music for a moment. And I want you to imagine you and your kids and grandkids. Look around for a moment, under, around, near. Raise your hand if you find some leaven. I'll have Drew grab some stuff over here. I'll grab some stuff here. Ha- f- help me find some bread. we got a bread over here. All right. Any leaven? Look on the floor. Got one? Okay, bring it over here. Good. One leaven. Let's get the leaven out. Get the left. There's one on the shelf right there. Yeah, you guys can both have one. All right, there you go. You got. We got to get it out. We got. Can't eat it. No, you got to get it out. You got to get it out. No, no, I got to have both. I got to get them out of here. Let me have that one. All right. All right. We're not passing out bread. We're getting rid of the bread. Remember, we got to get it out of the house for the seven days. You got that one. I got this one. All right. Any more eleven? Raise your hand. Any more eleven? All right, we've got to get out of the house. We're going to hand this to Drew, and Drew's going to take it out of here. Go take it out of a door. Get it out of the chapel. We got to get rid of the eleven. All right, way to go, Drew. Nice job. Now, this was designed by God to be an object lesson for you and your family, but also on your own. That During this time of preparation, as you went through your cupboards and things, you would also think in your own heart, I wonder what kind of unkindness I have in my own life. It was a time of introspection. It was a time of reflection. It was a time of remembrance. It was designed as a giant object lesson to reflect on what God has done, but also areas in your life that you might need to be reminded of his Passover or his need to deliver you. Now the passage continues and says, Now, during these seven days, no matter of work will be done on those days, but that which you 
must eat, but only prepared by you. So don't have other people cook for you during these seven days. This is a time for you to cook for yourself. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread on that same day that I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. So the date of this was Nisan 14. That was the first day of the Jewish month, Nisan the 14th. Now, when Jesus died, I believe, in 33 AD, we find that Passover occurs on Thursday the 14th, which begins in a seven-day process of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's during that time there's another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, if you go back a few days... I don't know if you remember from this passage, but earlier in this passage it said that you were to pick out your lamb for unleavened bread and your lamb for Passover on the 10th. So if we go backwards from Thursday being the 14th, the 10th would be Sunday. What was Jesus doing the Sunday before his resurrection? The triumphal entry. Jesus came in on his donkey into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He was literally presenting himself to the people on Lamb Selection Day. He will then die on Passover. He will be placed into the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a time that you would pray that God would bring out of the ground which you most needed for the harvest to come. And Jesus would be raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, which is why there's so many promises to claim here. When you look at these different feasts. Because you ever wondered like, how do you know Jesus is really the one way to God? I mean, am I a Catholic or am I a Protestant or am I a Christian just because I grew up in Cincinnati and just because I grew up in the Midwest? Isn't it true that if I'd grown up in India, I'd probably be Hindu? Or isn't it true if I grew up in, in, in Saudi Arabia, I might be Muslim? Isn't just all religions a social construct? Or are there real facts to back up who really is the way to God? The Jewish feasts give clear promises that we can really sink our teeth into to know that there's facts behind Jesus being the only way to God. What do I mean by that? Remember, Moses wrote these feasts and and prescribed these feasts back in 1500 plus BC. Jesus is showing up around 33 AD. And yet, he dies on the very day, Nisan 14th, of Passover as predicted 1,500 plus years ago. What's the chances of that? Could you predict your own death to be on the exact day you need it to be when you had to coordinate that with the Romans and, and the centurions and the captains and the chief priests were out to get you? The next day is unleavened bread. And it was that day that Jesus' body was placed into the ground. Huh. On Sunday, that particular year, Sunday was on first fruits. Now, the festival of first fruits is when you would bring to God the first fruit from your harvest and say, God, here's a little taste of what you've provided for me. I'm giving you a tenth percentage of my income, a tenth percentage of my first fruits from the harvest. But it really was saying, God, I'm giving you my first part because I'm trusting you that you're going to continue to provide what I need in the harvest the next couple months. So it was a piece of what was to come. Now, here's what's unbelievable. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of resurrection. Why? Because he was the first one to be resurrected as a, a piece of the promise of resurrection to come. He raised himself with the promise that he will be able to raise you and I when we put our faith in him. And there's a really bizarre verse. There's one verse that's like, Mark, please tell us more, but he didn't. 
In the book of Mark, it says that when Jesus raised himself from the dead, he also raised others at that time. You ever heard that passage? Why would Jesus raise a handful of people at the same time he raised himself on first fruits? Because first fruits required an offering. You had to give God a piece of that which was to come. So Jesus rose himself from the, from the dead, or God raised him from the dead. Then Jesus rose a few others from the dead to say, here's a piece of resurrection, a proof of what's to come. I'm going to raise other people from the dead. Now, he then said, I'm going to, be, I'm going to go up to heaven. So he's ascended. And he says, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 50 days later, on the very feast, on the very day prescribed by Moses of Pentecost... The time when Moses brought down the word of God, the Torah. So God sends you what you need from above, from the mountain. It was on that day that the Holy Spirit, that which they most needed, came down upon them at Pentecost. And there's good indication that all of these that were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ may hint at the second coming of Christ. There's a feast called trumpets. That at the rapture, the trumpet will sound. Yom Kippur, the day of salvation, a day when God returns and the Jewish people cry out for salvation from him, may very well sink up to Yom Kippur. And then there's a time, a millennial kingdom, an eternal kingdom beyond, when God comes and tabernacles or resides with his people. In these feasts are actual facts, historic facts facts or promises that we can sink our teeth into and know that who we're following is not just one of many ways to God, but the predicted Messiah. Now, that's just a little piece of what this life-giving party was about. And imagine Judas. He's at the party. You ever wondered, like, hey, if I'm really in God's will, because if God had a party and God had a plan, things would be comfortable and things would be good. You ever felt that way? Here is Judas and Jesus at God's party celebrating this feast of forgiveness. And in the middle of it, what happens? Wow, this is God's party. Jesus is here. It's got to be good. No, Satan is at the party. Remember what we read earlier? Like we're at God's party and Satan has shown up. Just because you got conflict in your life. Just because you got conflict going on in your relationships, just because you have what seems like spiritual attack in your life, doesn't mean you're out of God's will. Because right here at God's party, we see Judas betraying him and Satan entering him right in God's presence. And we're going to move now from God's life-giving party to the path to crashing your party. How did Judas crash his party? Instead of seeing him as a bad guy that we're nothing like, what if we began to see that there's a Judas in all of us? If we get on that path, we could crash our party as well. How do you do it? How do we avoid it, crashing our own party? Remember those different examples that we highlighted using Pacer? It's that easy. What happens? Number one, Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot who was numbered among the twelve, and he, there's our first note, went his own way. Well, that sounds simple enough. Yet how often do we say, oh, I know God says this in the Bible, but I'm not sure that really applies today. And we're not as kind as we should be. We're not going to rejoice in all things. I mean, come on, really? 
We're not going to be as generous as maybe we should, as kind as we should. I don't think you should love your enemies, or at least not that enemy. You're not going to believe what he or she did to me. And what's worse is instead of recognizing this as taking a step off God's path onto our own path, we're actually proud of the fact that we're stubborn. Right? How many of you said to somebody, well, I'm just stubborn? You kind of you have it as a badge of honor. You know, look at my, my, my scarlet S, stubborn. And there's been some advantages to that in your life. But as the book of Proverbs says, scorners love their scorning. You're proud of your foolishness. And you're going your own way is actually something that you should repent of and instead is something you're proud of. But you've stepped off God's path onto your own path. I had a friend I interviewed at a church about a year ago and he's been coming to Horizon for several years and getting to Bible study for the first time. And Chris shared in an interview that I did with him that God had really been working in his life, but he wasn't quite ready to surrender. He, he, he was believing the Bible. He was trusting the Bible. He was believing in Jesus. We didn't really have that connection the other Christians talked about. He said, one day I felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder and saying, there's something you're going to besides me for comfort. There's something you're going to in your life for relief, for reward, that you've made more important than me. And that's what's keeping you from surrendering. He felt like God was tapping on the shoulder and saying, the role that alcohol was playing in his life, it wasn't just a good thing, it'd become his God thing. He said, when I was willing to surrender and admit that I had turned alcohol into my God, the place of relief, the place of comfort, the place to reward, it was that moment of when I put that back in its proper place that I was finally able to see God and invite God into my life. Now, yours may not be alcohol. That's the amazing thing about idols. You can take anything, good thing, and turn it into a God thing. But there's some way in which we start going our own way and we step into and make something besides God our God. What's the next thing he does? Well, it's the same thing we do when we get on this path. He conferred with the chief priests. We begin to confer with the wrong people and the wrong actions. Right? He gets together the chief priests, gets together the captains. And when you do that, when you begin to confer, and the word confer is an interesting word. The, the Greek translation comes from a Hebrew concept from the Old Testament. David has just come face to face with Abigail and Naboth. If you don't know the story, Naboth is just this horrific, narcissistic, self-centered guy. And David's like, hey, we've been protecting your shepherds. Could we have a meal for the day? It was on one of the Jewish feast days when you're supposed to provide. David says, oh, I don't know. David never heard of it. Why would I give him my food? David's a mercenary, gets several mercenary men, and he's going to go kill Naboth for his total lack of hospitality. Abigail, his wife, stops David and says, please, 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 one day you're going to be king and you're not going to want to think to yourself, I got mad one day and I lost my temper and killed Naboth. Well, sure enough, David's like, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me from myself. And then, that that night, Naboth dies. And David is so impressed with this woman's ability to stop him from doing the wrong thing, it says he conferred with her. He flirted with her. He ends up proposing to her, and Abigail becomes his wife. So this idea of conferring is almost like to get down on one knee and propose, or to flirt with. And on the path to crashing your own party, it starts with going your own way, and then you begin to flirt with or confer with the wrong thing, the wrong action, the wrong habits. You ever found yourself flirting with temptation? 
conferring with people that you know aren't going to lead you in the right way, but there's something they're offering that's kind of drawing you in. See, Judas wanted power, and he's increasingly finding out Jesus is not headed to be the kind of Messiah he wanted. So he's starting to confer or flirt with the people of power, flirting with the people who do have access to the halls of power that he wants. Who do you confer with? See, part of changing paths and coming back to God's life-saving party is anywhere along the path you need to say to yourself, I am, I am conferring with the wrong people and the wrong actions. I need to change playgrounds and change playmates. Change the people I'm hanging out with that are taking me down this path. I was talking to a woman recently who's just been through a pretty horrific divorce and she's feeling very, very lonely. And she said, you know, the, the thing is we're always known for writing big checks and, and doing great things and and ever since the divorce, like nobody talks to me, nobody asks how I'm doing, nobody really cares. As we talked for a little bit, I said, it sounds like you're mourning the fact that you don't have any real close relationships or friends. She goes, yeah, I think that's it. I said, well, has anyone ever known the struggles that you've been going through and the challenges you've had? She said, not really. I said, it's not just that the friends you've had for the last 20 years are no longer friends, you're actually discovering they've never been friends. She said, well, that's very sad when you say it out loud. So I'm not judging. I'm saying that's what you're mourning. What's the chances that the people who haven't been your friends for 20 years are going to start being your friends for the next 20? Low. So maybe it's time for you to reach out and find some new friends. They can lead you on a new path. Not of guilt and reputation and sort of the, the shallow relationships, but deep friendships and real friendships. And so I connected her to several people here at our church. So here's somebody who needs some real friendship and, and I think is desperately hungry for grace and forgiveness. And I think just a little bit of grace and this person's going to come alive. And I shared with her, a friend of mine who's a business owner got into a cocaine habit. And it took him six months. I actually officiated the wedding for he and his wife. Six months he actually had to live away from his wife and away from their hometown in order to change playgrounds and change playmates. And today he's you know, very, very successful. He's restored his marriage and now has several children and he's got free from this cocaine addiction. But he said the problem was if I'd come back, and his wife was begging, please come back, I can't yet. It's not just getting high. It was on this road that I have to drive every day for work is where I used to drive to get high. So it's the high I get before I got high. I had to change playgrounds and change playmates. I had to change what I was conferring with or flirting with in order to restore and reframe my brain. Step three. We confer and flirt with the wrong people and actions and then we tolerate and excuse what we might do. This is so great. He's conferring with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to others. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to betray him. I'm just saying I might. I'm open to... Well, I'm not... I mean, a person like me would never do that. But if someone like me were to do something like that, how might it happen? What might somebody who is willing to fudge their integrity and some financial issues do? What what might... I'm not going to do it. Don't get me wrong. I don't do those kind of things. But what might it look like? Now, on the path to temptation, long before you walk into rebellion, you walk through the stage of fantasizing what you might do. And when your brain begins to engage in what you might do, you begin to entertain, well, what might it look like not to be married to them? What might it look like if I'm not going to be rewarded by this company properly, if I need to reward myself a little bit? What might it look like? 
and you begin to fantasize, but you're not doing it. This is not wrong. Not, I mean, these are just thoughts, right? These are just thoughts. And you use that very idea that you're only mighting about it to excuse the fact and tolerate the fact. And what you don't realize is you're moving. Oh, no, I'm not doing it. I'm just saying I might. I'm not even saying I might. I'm just saying a person might. But you're moving down because when you entertain yourself with the idea that you might do it, you're actually moving yourself closer and closer to doing it. And now you get to the next stage, which is you're haggling over price. Because when you start entertaining that you might do something, you're really just saying, well, is it going to be worth it? Is the affair worth it? Is my integrity worth it? Is my purity worth it? And now you're just haggling over price. How much is it worth it to betray Jesus? How much is it worth to break my kid's heart? How much is it worth it to be unkind? How much is it worth it? After all, he's never going to appreciate me or she's never going to really appreciate me. You're haggling over price. There's a well-traveled story. It actually goes way before Winston Churchill and Groucho Marx. Um, so it's a little bit of an urban legend. So it's a joke that at least many people have, have repeated over history. But the, the joke slash story goes something like this. I'll use Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill turns to a famous actress who's with, her one, with him one day and says, Madame, would you be willing to sleep with me for $10 million? She's like, well, for $10 million, I might. Hmm. Would you sleep with me for $2? She slaps him. What kind of a woman do you think I am? We've already established what kind of woman you are. Now we're just haggling over price. Ooh. And isn't that the stage you get to? Which is once you've entertained the I might do it, you've established the kind of person you might be. Now you're just haggling over price. Are the pros worth the cons? Are the benefits worth the consequences? And at that stage, you don't realize how far down the road you are. And ironically, Judas is doing all of this while at a feast that's designed not for perfect people, but for broken people and betraying people to find forgiveness. And no matter how far you've gone down the path, whether you find yourself today surprised you're one step down the path or you're three steps down the path or five steps down the path, any place you're at can lead you back to the place of unleavened bread and the place where God can pass over you And His grace is available to you. But then we move to the fifth stage. What's the fifth stage? We seek rebellion without accountability. We're no longer just saying, I might do it. We're now actively seeking opportunity to do it. We're seeking out ways to gossip. Seeking out ways to diminish somebody else's reputation. We're seeking out opportunities to betray or get rewarded. We're seeking out relationships that might lead to an affair. And notice, he seeks opportunity to betray him in the absence of the multitude. This is why Jesus will be tried at 2 to 3 in the morning. Because the power brokers know that any legitimate trial Jesus is going to be innocent of. Why is Judas going to meet Jesus in the garden at midnight with the soldiers? Because there's no one else around. See, as you move your way down the path to destruction, you're going to start rebelling by... Avoiding accountability in the absence of accountability, in the absence of other people. That's where you're going to find yourself because it's in the absence of accountability it's easier to rebel and only listen to your own voices. That's why Jesus says in John 3, men love the darkness for their deeds are evil. You begin to slowly pull away from other people and pull away from accountability. 
Because rebellion doesn't like accountability. What are you doing? What are you thinking? I saw you flirting with somebody at a t-ball game for crying out loud. What are you doing? You're always sitting next to so-and-so's mom. Whatever it looks like, you don't. You begin to ignore and push away the people that might say things that actually might be wise. You end up having secrets because it's in the absence of other things. I remember a couple came to my office many years ago and he was just distraught. He'd gotten to the edge where he almost got arrested because of how far he'd gone down this path. But he got a little bit, just one more little dose of grace and mercy. As I was sitting in my office, he began to tell the story of secret bank accounts. A secret gambling habit. So much shame and guilt he had over that, not being able to pay that, that he began to lie to his wife and not tell her about that. And then he's having having additional funds to take from here, to pay from there, and just the, the... the unbelievable amount of double-mindedness he had to keep track of and the stress and the guilt and shame. It had all all come out, or at least a big chunk of it had come out. I said, well, you know, most people who are in this case, they can't bring it all out at once. There's so much shame. They bring out one piece and see whether or not they'll still be loved and they can face it. And then they'll bring in another piece. There's probably a lot more secrets still to bring out. And so over the next couple years, he began to bring out all the secrets and he began to finally begin to deal with the shame, the guilt, the brokenness, and the secrets in his life. But he would say the same thing happened to him. It was the absence of accountability led him deeper and deeper into secret rebellion. Do you have secrets in your life? Secret habits? you find yourself roaming over to the computer at midnight or one in the morning when there's no accountability and you wonder, I wonder if I'm going to struggle with lust tonight. Of course. But again, God's not looking for perfect people. Wherever you are on this path, God wants you to get off the path that leads to failure. Even Judas, after he crashes his life, ends up committing suicide. Peter denies him three times. But even Peter denying him three times still believed in one thing. There was a path back to Passover. There was a path back to grace. He could be restored again. And you can as well. So whether you feel like you're invited to God's party because you've lived a religious life or whether you've crashed your own party, this feast is for you. So I want you to pick one. Of these five different pieces, which one most resonated with you of something you might want to repent of today? Just the stubbornness of going your own way? Have you gone a little farther? Are you flirting with things that you would have told yourself you never would have flirted with? Are you tolerating or excusing behaviors that your conscience has been telling you, oh, no, 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 you're on the wrong path? Are you deep enough now that you're haggling over the price of your own integrity? Or have you found yourself withdrawing from accountability from other people? I want you to pick one and ask God to turn your heart around. That you can trust him again for his way and that you can find the power of grace to pass over you. So that you can trust him and lead and walk in the path he's given you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this scripture, how powerful it is, how real it is. How practical it is. Teach us how we can walk in your path. Teach us how we can avoid Judas's path. But thank you for dying for broken, wayward people like me. 
I ask you to work in each heart here today, Father, that you would bring people into the light. For you are the true light that brings salvation to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today.